All right, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to get into Luke chapter 4 tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and now we ask that you might instruct us. And God, we ask also that you might comfort those who are, who are struggling and grieving, Lord, bring comfort. Those who are dealing with discouragement and temptation, Lord, may you be the model for us to look through and be, may you be our strength. For those of us, Lord, who just need to hear from you, God, may you speak into our hearts and our minds that we might hear your voice and receive your instruction. We thank you, dear God, for your goodness and your love toward us. And we thank you, Lord, for just uh, the blessing it is to be in fellowship with other believers. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in uh, Luke chapter 4. Last week we left off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And now we're going to start out with verse 1. And I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then we'll pause for a minute. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit returned into, uh, in, sorry, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Now, this episode starts with a, a, a summary. I believe the first two verses are somewhat of a summary of what's coming next in the temptation because we do read that, that he was constantly being tempted by the devil while he was in the wilderness. But notice that it states that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's following up from that baptism moment. Remember, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and the voice from heaven, this is my son with my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Uh, and, and now he goes right away from the Jordan, uh, returning from the Jordan into the wilderness. Now, I want to say this about spiritual victories because I, I think we can all identify with this, that, that oftentimes, and I would say almost every time after a spiritual victory in our life, we often face great trial or temptation. I, I had learned that over the years. We'd come back from or, or have just an amazing, incredible moment where the Lord reached and, and spoke into youth kids' lives or on the mission field. And as soon as you come out of that and you're even tired or whatever the case is, temptation always follows. And sometimes it, it might even just be in a church service that, that God has spoken to you and met you in a fresh way. And uh, you leave from here and tomorrow you're, you're going to deal with the temptation or you'll get home and get in a quarrel with your wife or your husband or your child or whatever the case is. Oftentimes after spiritual victor- victories, we face great temptations. Now, I want to point this out because of the fact that we're going to see that Jesus is the one who we want to identify with because he's identified with us in every way. And we left off with him coming up out of those baptismal waters, and we shared about how he identified with us in every way, including through baptism, and now we're going to see even in temptation. So he's led into the wilderness. Now, uh, I have a picture here. This is actually from the town of Jericho, and you see there's a sign, Mount of Temptation. There it is. You can go there. Um, actually, no one knows that this is the mountain, but, but because of Matthew's gospel about being led out to a high mountain, this is like the highest mountain in the region. So they had built a monastery on this mountain. 
and, uh, and there's uh, cable cars that go up from Jericho. It's like Disneyland now, right? You know, hey, this, this is where Jesus was tempted, you know? Um, of course, we don't know at all that that was the actual place, but it makes for a good tourist stop because right there at the sign, they have shops that you can shop out and spend a lot of money. Uh, so, but uh, I do have a video. Now, this video, before you play the video, this video is actually uh, in the Judean wilderness. It's a monastery, so I'm flying a drone. Uh, and I didn't know if it was legal for me to fly a drone there or not. I had permits, but uh, I didn't know if that particular spot was legal, so I was kind of not getting too close to anything. But it'll give you the idea of what the Judean wilderness looks like. And again, there's a monastery there that these monks built to be uh, for asceticism. But anyway, go ahead and play that video here, and you can get an idea. Nope, that's a picture. You got to go to the video. There we go. <clears throat> that's the shakiest part. Sorry about that. But you can see it's pretty desert landscape. Can you turn off the lights there, Richard? You got that? There we go. Now you can kind of see it a little better. So the monks had built this monastery in this wadi, that's what it's called, uh, this, this uh, ravine. And that's, that's kind of the monastery that they had built. I'm sure they were trying to figure out who was flying a drone uh, <laughs> through this area. But uh, the, the, they had done this to try to pull themselves out and, and kind of in the order of John the Baptist. That was their thought. So they're kind of no earthly good. Uh, as they've separated themselves from society. Uh, but uh, this is that wadi. So you can see down below, that's where the river would be. Now, this is February, not much water there. Um, so you get an idea of what the terrain is like in the Judean wilderness. And I'm going to circle back around here in just a moment. Um, and sometimes we picture different things when we think the, the term wilderness and there it is. <laughs> That's the wilderness that we're talking about. So it's pretty barren land. And uh, you can turn back on the lights, Richard. Uh, so this area is very barren and dry. And that's February again. So this is one of the wet, wetter times of the year. And, uh, and Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and, and in those days, he ate nothing. Matthew tells us in Matthew's gospel that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So uh, uh, obviously that idea of fasting is a choice not to eat, uh, the, which I, I believe that it's one and the same. Uh, the spirit led him. He was led by the spirit. And I think that's an important concept too, that we always want to be led by the spirit, not led by our anger, not led by our flesh, not led by uh, our, the lust of our flesh or, or the pride of life, but we want to be led by the spirit. And so, so we go on to say that in verse three, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, as, as the gospel writers, both Matthew and Luke record three of these uh, temptations that Satan had tempted Jesus with, we're going to see how Jesus deals with it. And all three answers Jesus gives come right out of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy means second law. And it was a repeat of the law for the people of Israel that they might be reminded of God's standards and what he should do. Oftentimes we look at the law as something oppressive that God has given to us. That's often how we treat the laws. It's oppressive. Well, that's our rebellious flesh. Actually, what we see is when we honor God and are obedient to his law, there's freedom found there. The unfortunate part of that is we are incapable of keeping the law because of our sin nature. And that's why we need a Savior who was capable to be tempted in every way but be without sin. So the devil comes to him. We already know that Jesus is hungry. And he, and he tempts him with, you're the son of God. Command this stone to become bread. Now, certainly Jesus was capable of this. There's no question about that. Remember when Jesus came into the city uh, on Palm Sunday, and he said that even the very stones could cry out. Um, and, and we know that God even said that he could create children of Abraham out of stones. And so the, the power of God is absolutely there to feed himself or provide for himself. Certainly we saw miracles where Jesus multiplied, uh, fed 5,000 uh, with the fish and the loaves and fed the 4,000 and did many, many miracles that Jesus did. Uh, and it's interesting, by the way, back in the 1980s, there was a a whole movement of uh, recording artists to record this song called We Are the World. And it was all about like, we're gonna raise money for the impoverished and the hungry. And, and, uh, and so they had like uh, all the famous stars at the time, Tina Turner, uh, Michael Jackson, all the famous 80, 80s recording artists. Uh, Stevie Wonder was a part of it, so many. And uh, so as they were putting together this song, We Are the World, they even said, in, there's a line in it. It says, just as Jesus turned the stones to bread so we can feed. <laughs> but Jesus didn't turn the stones to bread. That's a great picture of the world, isn't it? <laughs> we, the, their title song, We Are the World, is like, oh, yeah, we, we, we don't know what we're talking about. We make stuff up. We, we lie even. And I don't know that it was intentional or just ignorance. But nonetheless, what we read is Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. This comes right from Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, so he humbled you. And, and remember, this is, uh, Moses is recalling what God had done in the desert. Allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So in context here, we're talking about dependence upon God. We're not talking about dependence upon self. That's what Satan was tempting Jesus with is you do it. You take care of it. You look to yourself to make bread because you're hungry. But that's not what Jesus did. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3 Jesus says that, no, no, I'm not going to live by the man, the, 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 uh, the, by bread alone, but I'm going to live by the word of God because it's the word of God that has the ability to bring sustenance to us, to nourish us. If you remember in the desert wanderings over those 40 years, as Israel wandered through the desert, they were always fed. They received bread from heaven every morning with the exception of the Sabbath. 
on the evening and the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect double the amount and then, and then they would have that. Now, if they ever tried to collect more than just that day's bread, God had warned them, it won't last. And sure enough, it would rot if they collected more than one day's bread because it was God's word that sustained them all the way through their wilderness wanderings. And sometimes we have a hard time believing that, that God can sustain me. God can take me through the trial. God can bear me, bear, uh, give me the strength to bear with, to, to, to make it through to the end. God can give me a hope that no one else can. And so oftentimes we look for ourselves to fix the problem, right? Ever, anyone ever been there? I, I'm going to do this. I'll take care of it. And then before you know it, you're like, man, I never even prayed. <laughs> I, I got to back up a few steps and pray. And so Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to do this, Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the every word of God. Jesus showed himself faithful. Verse 5 says, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And, of course, I showed you a high mountain there near the Jordan. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. And their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me before, but worship before me, all will be yours. Verse 8, and Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And so as the devil takes him up on this high mountain, now I want to give you an understanding of the word Satan. The word Satan means enemy. So we can use the word Satan generically as an enemy of the brethren. We can speak of it, uh, Satan, the word Satan as uh, the, the one who uh, is a tempter. And that could refer even to demons or whatever the case. Um, or uh, Satan can be the actual uh, person, the devil, or that serpent of old uh, that we read about in Genesis 3, and, and he's referenced again in Revelation. Or um, <clears throat> sometimes uh, people refer to him as Lucifer. That actually comes from the Latin Bible, and it means morning or day, morning, day star, uh, so, or morning star. And uh, not to be confused with Christ, uh, the, the bright morning star, but... Uh, and so the, those are kind of the names that are given for Satan or the devil. But notice he takes him up on a high mountain and he offers him something. He said, I will give you all, all this authority I will give to you. I'm going to make you the ruler of this world. I'm going to give you everything for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. So the question is, is that true? Does Satan really have the authority to give the, the, the kingdoms of this world over to Jesus? And I would say, I, I think he does, actually, currently, right now. I, I think he does. And I think we can go back through biblical prophecy and see the, 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 the prophetic outlook for the world and all the kingdoms that come through it. You go to Daniel chapter 7, we see that. But eventually, we know that a ruler is coming from heaven. That'll be at Christ's return, where Christ will redeem the entire earth and set up his millennial reign. But we know that the, Satan is also referred to as the God of this earth. Not, not the creator of the world, but just the one that is, is 
trying to rule this earth. And so, so he offers this to Jesus and says, but you've got to worship me. That's what he wants. You worship me. And look at Jesus' answer. Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus is going to say that same phrase, get behind me, Satan, later on again, when, when Peter actually tries to get Jesus to not go to the cross, when he tries to rebuke Jesus, say, no, no, you're not going to die. And, and, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, then uh, as a temptation. But, but look at what he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. That's the passage he's quotes for, and it says the exact same thing. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And shall take oaths in, and shall uh, take oaths in his name. Um, <clears throat> him only you shall serve. That's it. It is God alone that you fear or reverence or worship, and it is God alone that you serve, and you serve no other person. And so he he again quotes from the law of God, saying, "No, this is what I will do." Verse nine says, "Then he brought him to Jerusalem." set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, gotta look, I lost my, from here. Verse 10, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Go to verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so as as in this third temptation, he takes Jesus up to this high pinnacle of the temple. This is probably on the eastern wall of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. Now, I couldn't get a picture of that that view because there's there's, uh, walls with... uh, arrow slots on the, the temple mount that you, so you can't quite really see over. But I did get this picture. That picture you showed before, Addy. There we go. This is on the ramparts and it's right next to the temple mount and you're kind of looking into the Kidron Valley. If you can see that far tower in the background there on top of the hill, that's actually uh, the Church of the Ascension and it's on top of the Mount of Olives. So below is the Kidron Valley and then the Temple Mount. And so you can see that if you were actually on the eastern gate or eastern wall of the Temple Mount, you'd have a deep fall down into the valley. You kind of see everything, okay? And so here it says, he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from him here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12. And you don't have to go there right now. Uh, Addy, don't, don't worry about pulling that up. But that's what he's quoting. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12. And what I want to point out about this is Satan probably knows Scripture better than you do. There's a, there's a really good chance of that, that he knows Scripture better than you do. In fact, I would almost guarantee he knows Scripture better than you. And do you see how he twists Scripture? How he twists it to tempt? He, he, he's, he's stating something that's true from the Psalms, but he's misapplying it in order to tempt Jesus. That's what Satan does. From the very beginning, he's been twisting God's words. 
He's been questioning God and casting doubt on God. And, and, and so, so sad it is when we fall into that same temptation where we're questioning, did God really mean that? Did, did God really say that? Well, you know, I, maybe God just didn't understand. We, we've heard it said today that, oh, you know, all those principles of the Bible are so old-fashioned, right? That, that, that argument has been going on forever. <laughs> oh, that principle, do not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, it's so old-fashioned. That was like a couple weeks ago, at least when God created and, and told you not to eat of that fruit of the tree. And you, you're not going to die, but you're going to become like God. And man, has that ever been the temptation since? I want to be like God. I want to make my own decisions. I want to be the one in charge. That's always the temptation for man. But notice how Jesus responds. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massah. It's Deuteronomy 6.16, sorry. Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's where he stopped. But he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. And that is the principle here. You're not to tempt God. Uh, certainly God is capable to protect. Certainly God will fulfill every single promise. But that doesn't mean that you just go and tempt God and put him to the test. And, and we can see that in a practical way. Could God save you from a train if, a, uh, 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 if you were laying down on the railroad tracks? Yeah, he could, but, but he probably won't because you're putting him to the test. You're tempting him, and we're not to tempt God. We're not to do dumb stuff just because we could. We're not to, to take control of ourselves. And, and, and as, as here is he's being tempted, notice what he's being tempted with. Cast himself off a high place. When somebody casts themselves off a high place, what is that called? It's called suicide. It's, it's called suicide. Cast yourself off. God will save you. In fact, he even said so. So sad when people buy into a lie from Satan. I think this lie is still one of the most pernicious lies. Life would be better without you. Life would be better not living life. That doesn't even make sense logically. But yet we buy into the lie of Satan and then we think that we can tempt God and say, okay, yeah, I can do this. No, we know that the devil comes only to kill and destroy. That's what his purpose is. He, he's like a roaring lion prowling around for his prey looking to kill and destroy. That's all he wants to do. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your hope. He wants to rob you of hope. He wants to try to take away your future. He wants to do everything he can to destroy you. And so here as he tempts the Lord Jesus to cast himself off this high place. And don't worry, you'll be safe. Don't worry, it'll be a better end. Don't worry, it'll be better. Jesus answers, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Do, do, do you see the difference? Satan is telling him to do this, but notice how Jesus responds, the Lord your God, every single time. So you're, you're going to live by every word of God. He's going to be your provider. You worship the Lord your God. He, he's your Lord and he's your God. He's Yahweh, the great I am. 
And then again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. If he is the Lord your God, then you're not going to do these things. You're not going to live this way. You're going to live in subjugation to God, not yourself, not others, and certainly not Satan. And so, so Satan, even in quoting scripture, is twisting this. But what I really want you to gain from all this passage is not what you need to do better, but what Jesus did perfectly. That's really what I want you to pick up from this passage tonight is that Jesus did it perfectly. Because we read in verse 13, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, you and I can't say we've been tempted every way, but Jesus can for 40 days. That must have been absolute hell. No, no, not not hell like the eternal place of damnation and judgment, but but just the turmoil of the trial must have been horrible because for 40 days after not eating, we just see him continually being tempted and we only read about three, but but we read that he was, he had every temptation and uh, but yet he was victorious, and and First um, Corinthians ten thirteen tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can you are able. But with the temptation, will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now I'd encourage you to write this verse down. This is a verse of hope. Why do I say that? I don't want you to take it as a verse to bring guilt into your life or, or to say that you're not good enough. I want you to take it as what it is. It's a promise. It's a promise and it's a reminder that God is not going to allow you to be tempted. What you, what is, leave that up for a minute, Addy, please. Uh, allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Oftentimes when we're being tempted, we feel like, oh, I can't take it. I've got to give in. Uh, and by the way, temptations are more than just uh, the the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Uh, we also uh, get tempted in our thoughts. Uh, we we have condemning thoughts and things of that sort. Uh, there, there's there's inward temptations, obviously from our flesh, and there's outward temptations uh, for us to to go after. But but here we want to understand that that Jesus is the model. He knew the Word of God. He trusted in the word of God and, and, and was obedient to God, the, the Father. And um, we see this promise that we're not going to be t- tempted beyond what we're able. Now look at what it says. But with the temptation, we'll also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That means God will always give you a way of escape. And, and certainly we saw that with Jesus, didn't we? We saw that Jesus quoted scripture. And each time escaped from the temptation. He never sinned. He was tempted but was without sin. And by the way, temptation is not sin. Don't confuse those two. You can be tempted to do something but refuse to do it. And that doesn't mean you're guilty of doing it. Don't, don't bring guilt on yourself for being tempted. But rather turn, your, turn praise toward God for not conceding to, to the temptation. That, that you were obedient and took the way of escape. James 1, 13 through 14 tells us about temptation. It says that let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. 
For God can not be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So what we learn from James here is that God is not the tempter. That's important. He can't be tempted. God knows the truth. And there's no evil in God. So one, he wouldn't tempt you to try to provoke evil in you. Uh, and, and he himself knows all truth. So he's not going to be deceived or lied to. It's kind of hard to, to lie to somebody who knows truth, right? It, it, it doesn't work too well. And, and so with that, we need to understand that, that we're not tempted by God. God doesn't tempt. Um, <clears throat> but we're tempted by our own desires. We're enticed by that. And, the, and Satan knows or the... The demons, they, they know very well what our desires are. Some are, usually, some are, I'm sure, spiritual, and others are just our own flesh. So how do we deal with temptation? Well, James 4, 7 goes on to say, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did Jesus resist the devil? Yes. Did the devil flee? Yes. Now, we know that it was 40 days that Jesus was, well, we, we, we think it was 40 days. We know 40 days without food. Um, so we're not sure how much total time w- elapsed here with the temptation. But, but we know it was 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days without food. And, uh, and we know that Satan eventually fled from him and waited for a new opportune time to, to, uh, uh, cause, uh, tempt, to tempt him. And so we're told in the Bible, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we resist the devil? Well, we do it with God's word. We know God's word. We trust in his promises. So if you have trouble trusting the promises of God, start writing them down. If you're struggling with an ongoing sin in your life, write down what God says about that sin. Learn, get God's view on that sin. I want to take you to another passage. Oh, sorry. Let me bring up this chart real fast. Uh, go to this chart. I want to, I want to compare two people. Um, so we have Adam and Jesus. Adam is referred to as the first Adam in Scripture. Uh, of course, from Adam we all come. And Jesus is called the last Adam. And we know that, that, that Adam was tempted in the garden. And Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Adam was tempted by the serpent. Jesus by the devil. One and the same. Uh, Adam was tempted one day, one time. Jesus, 40 days. Go on to the next slide. Adam was tempted in the best of circumstances. Now think about Adam for a moment. He was tested in a place where he had everything provided for him. He was lacking nothing. In fact, God even came into the garden and, and, and had fellowship with Adam and, and was there with him. And, and, uh, and we, we know that Adam wasn't lacking food. He wasn't lacking any need. He wasn't lacking authority because God had given him dominion over the earth. There was nothing that, that Adam was lacking in the garden or Eve. Uh, Jesus was tempted in the worst of circumstances. Remember the Judean wilderness? I showed you that. Looked like a great place to go on vacation without anybody around. I mean, I guess, yeah, going to Israel on vacation is really cool. But I, I mean, just being out there by yourself in the wilderness with nothing around and being alone is the worst of the circumstances. Adam brought death through sin. 
Jesus brought life through sinless death. Go on to the next slide. Adam, the first Adam, brought eternal death, and the last Adam brought eternal life. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, what we had failed to do, Jesus did for us. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Remember I said I want you to consider Jesus, not, not look at this temptation of what you need to do more, but who you need to trust in. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, what, what is the role of a priest? Let me ask you that question. What's the role of a priest? Mediation. That's correct. Mediation between who? People and God. Absolutely. And the, the priests of the Old Testament did that very thing. They ministered in the temple on behalf of the people unto God. That was their role. And, and so here we, say, we see that uh, it says we have a great high peace who, priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That means our, our belief on him, our, our trust, our, belief, our faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a beautiful passage because really what the author of Hebrews is saying is that you hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ was powerful enough to have victory over temptation, to be sinless, to die a sinless death in your place that he might become your righteousness and he might take your unrighteousness nailing it to the cross. And so you have a high priest who has already done this, so now you can come boldly to the throne. Now you can trust that, that God receives you, that he accepts you. You no longer have to live in hiding and shame, but you live in victory and, and are welcomed before God, coming boldly to the throne, that you might obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. Now, I remember one time calling, um, I, w- I was trying to learn more about the Roman Catholic Roman Catholic doctrines, the Marian doctrines, the four Marian doctrines of the Roman Catholic faith. And I was trying to answer actually some questions from some youth kids that their families were Catholic and, and they were coming to youth group and they, they were a little upset that I wasn't saying the Blessed Virgin Mary whenever I spoke about Mary. And so, so um, I was just doing some research trying to put together a good apologetic uh, or defense for, for the Christian faith uh, or the evangelical Christian faith. And um, so I called up a Catholic priest, and I was talking to him, and I, I told him what, why I was calling him and what was going on. And uh, I have no, uh, by the way, anytime you talk to somebody from a different perspective or even a cult, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, tell them who you are. Don't, don't, don't try to act like you're not a Christian uh, to try to bait them. Be honest and upfront because it's going to get real awkward when they realize you've been lying to them. <laughs> okay, so if you talk to a Muslim, tell them you're a Christian. <laughs> It's okay, you can do that. If they ask you about Muhammad, just say, I don't know anything about Muhammad, but I know about Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus because that's totally acceptable. So, so anytime you talk to somebody of another faith, just be honest and upfront. 
Um, I've seen a lot of Christians who have tried to be undercover Christian. It doesn't, it never works. So, um, but anyway, I called the priest and I said, I, tell me, I don't understand um, <clears throat> why pray to Mary? Um, why why would, you, would you do that? And we're having this conversation. He was sharing with me, well, you know, Jesus is angry at you. Jesus is, I mean, he died for you. You're still sinning. Because remember, Jesus is still on the cross, right, in the Roman Catholic faith because he's continually being crucified. That's the idea that, uh, of what's, what's happening spiritually. Uh, of course, Jesus said, it is finished. And there's many differences there. But, but he said, but it's like when, when you're in trouble with your dad and you kind of go to your mom in hopes that, that you can ease the situation, right? And uh, so that's why you need to go to Mary. And I said... And I thought about that for quite some time, of course, looking at scriptures and what scriptures actually teach about Jesus Christ. And as I read here in Hebrews, I can't believe that that's who we're supposed to go to. In fact, nowhere in scripture does it tell us to pray to Mary. Nowhere does it tell us that Mary is our our mediator between us and God. In fact, we only know that there's one mediator between man and God. That's Christ Jesus. And that's what he did for us on the cross. And as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as, as Jesus promised paradise to the thief that had done nothing good, I'm telling you right now, I don't see anything on that cross that shows anger toward man, but I see an incredible love and sacrifice toward mankind. And so we read here in Hebrews that, that we may obtain because he has been through all these things in every way, that we might come boldly to the throne of grace, not to the person of Mary or some other saint or anything like that, but right to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Do you think God wants you to be successful? Absolutely. And when I say successful, I mean in the perspective of eternity, I'm not talking about worldly success. I'm talking about having victory. In fact, really in God's view, you already have the victory. You you just don't see it quite yet. But you've been given the victory because Jesus was sinless. Wow, I'm going way too long here. I am not going to make it through what I thought. (laughs) Um, And and so we, we have to understand that Jesus has already done this work for us. And, and we, can, we can depend upon him. Now, I want to encourage you with something. Because remember I said, I think sometimes our, our temptations can be uh, really a poor fixation on self. Now, you might get really frustrated or upset at me for what I'm going to say. But listen, by nature, we're really selfish people. Uh, that's our nature. Our nature is to look to self. And, and even if, if you deal with uh, issues of never feeling good enough or issues of, of uh, being hurt by somebody and you, you feel like nobody's ever done, treated you right because you've been hurt by this person or even sometimes it, it comes down to our, our thoughts about ourselves. all of those things are an issue of self. It's, an, it's a fixation of self. So what does the Bible teach about that temptation? Well, we're told in Corinthians that we, uh, we not only cast down any arguments, any high things that exalt itself against 
the knowledge of God. That means including all the promises of God and everything that God teaches. But it says that we bring every thought into captivity and make it obedient to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. So we take every thought, every thought in our head. We're not just talking about lofty philosophers of the world. We're talking about even our own philosophies going on in here. The philosophies that drive us to, to what, what we're going to live for that day or that week or that year. The things that we're going to look forward to. The desires of our heart. Every single philosophy in this mind, we take it and make it, take it into captivity. And we make it obedient to Christ. So where's self in all this? Well, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live unto Christ, the Son of God. That, that's now how I live. Self is dead. And now I'm in Jesus. There's a big difference in the, the, the mindset of a born-again believer who's recognized that Christ is his victory or her victory Christ is the one I look to. Christ is where my help comes from. Christ is the one who will get me out of the rut of self-pity, self-loathing, self-self-self, self-love, whatever the case is. Christ is going to pull me up out of that that grave of, of, of self. It is Christ. Everything is about Christ. And so now I make my life about him. And so I say, well, what does Christ teach me? Well, Love, really, truly, love. Look at what he modeled, love of God, love of others. In fact, I don't think I remember one time when Jesus taught, you need to love yourself more. Nope, not one time. I'd love it if you could show it to me, but it doesn't exist in the scripture because that's our problem. We love ourselves too much and it affects the way we live. It impacts how, who we live with. Uh, do you realize, like, for, for, for dads or for husbands, you're, to, you're not to love yourself more. You're to love your wife more. You're to love your kids more, which means it may change your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions toward everybody in the household. And why? Because I want to be obedient to Christ, and so I love them more. Wives, same thing to husbands. Moms, same thing to children. I want to love them more. It doesn't mean that they're never going to get in trouble. Sorry, guys, if you're a kid. <laughs> but, but it really is about loving the way Christ loved, looking to love others, and being freed, not rather than you being ca- held captive by sin and self, but you being set free by God to, to live that life that God has set apart for you. Well, we have run out of time, and I was going to get into I was going to go all the way through verse 30 tonight. <laughs> Not a chance, man. Wow. Boy, I totally misjudged that one tonight. I was like, oh, I can do this. Uh, but let me encourage you as we close. Christ is your victory. It is all about Jesus Christ. And as soon as you realize that he's done it for you, you can start rejoicing and living in joy. As soon as you can say Jesus, as soon as you can declare his name over your life, and believe it, you're going to see that God brings victory into your life. And it doesn't mean life gets easier, but you start realizing that, man, every trial I go through, it's Jesus. It's his. 
Every hardship, every joy, it's yours. I'm just a servant. I'm no one, you're everything, God. And we start finding true joy in the midst of trial. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, dear Jesus, that you gave us the victory. Lord, you modeled victory for us with temptation. And Lord, it is clear that the enemy hates us. Lord, it is clear that he despises our lives. And Lord, we want to be free. If, if you're in this room this evening and you've been being held captive by temptation, lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes, if you, if, if you need a victory from self, I want you to pray to the Lord right now. Lord Jesus, give me a victory. I need you. I need your name over my life. Lord, I want to honor you, but teach me how. Lord, I want to be set free, but help me have the faith to do so. I need you so bad in my life, Lord. I need a victory. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for dying for us on that cross, nailing our sins to the cross. We thank you for your love and your acceptance, the peace that you made between us and our, our creator. God, we're so grateful. Lord, we thank you that in you we already have the victory. Lord God, you are our joy. You are our hope. And we trust in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Satan loves to single out pray. He makes, loves to make you think that you're all alone, that you have nobody that can help you. And uh, that's exactly what animals do to take out prey. That's what hunters do, single out something and, and take it. But I want you to know something. One, you're not alone. If you need prayer, we're here for you. If you need some help or somebody to stand with you, we're here. John, in his first epistle, he writes this in 1 John 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let Jesus be the banner over you. Let Jesus be the one who gives you victory. May God bless you. May he keep you. May he fill your life with his love. Amen.